Okay, I'm trying to flesh out a part of the book and I only have pieces of it, so this might be a, a little bit disjointed, but the core, the core problem that I'm looking at, the conceptual problem when you write, okay, I'm writing a, a kind of history of the 21st century so far, but it's not really the 21st century because it's only roughly the first two decades and it's not exhaustive. I'm picking out mostly, I'm cherry picking pieces or events in the 21st century that are universally recognized as significant, but there are lots of significant events in any two decades of history, modern history anyway. So they tend to be tech-based events like stock market crashes and responses to wars and so on, where there's a high, there's a large central component of technology in how those events unfolded and what their outcomes were. So all that being said, the, the key thing I'm looking at is the, the way that we are solving problems. And um, I took... I lifted from Freeman, I think now the late Freeman Dyson, uh, the scientist who's also a writer, uh, this idea that you have Napoleonic and Tolstoyan, <laughs> Tolstoyan, I guess is how you say it, Tolstoy and Napoleon, uh, ways of doing science. And here I'm talking about science as a kind of general, um, I don't want to say a procedure, science as being a kind of human practice that we do to arrive at truths that we think are really our truths, as opposed to, um, you know, looking at the stars or, you know, doing astrology or something like that, or choose your favorite example where there's no there there. We think that, look, if we do empirical science, then we have a the best chance that we can have as a species, as a society of actually arriving at things that are at least provisionally true. Um, and so in that very open-ended sense, science is about inference. It has to be about inference because you're taking what you see, what you observe and what you already know, and then you're coming up with some new explanation or some set of predictions or some anticipated outcome um, for what you see and what you already know, using what you already know and what you, what you see. So that's kind of what happens when you do science is you observe some phenomenon or some set of phenomena and then you, you say, well, you know, we already know that uh, relative density works this way and this is a weird perturbation in this physical system. I'm just making up these d details, but you can fill them in. You're doing fluid dynamics or something and you see something that you didn't expect. So you take everything you know about fluid dynamics and you look at the new observations and then you try to figure out, well, why did that happen? So I think one of the things I'm worried about is all, you know, most of the big institutions have become Napoleonic. In other words, very large top-down um, approaches to solving, solving problems. And in the modern history of thought and intellectual history itself, 
we kind of go back and forth between these um, ways of doing things. So, you know, early, before the two big wars, there was a lot of tinkering. This was the age of Einstein. And people were working on disparate problems and people had really different ideas and people were really kind of um, coming up with novel solutions to those ideas. Now, the problems were very interesting and they did have solutions. Uh, so you can make the argument that, that we're running out of <laughs> problems that actually have easy solutions, or not easy solutions, but, but have solutions. But, but the, they're, you know, in, the, in, the, in modern history, you see the swing back and forth. After the war, particularly the second war, we had all this new technology that we had used for war making, somewhat necessarily given the threat in Europe. And we had all this money circulating, and so we had big science. Like This is the age of um, doing science. Basically, this was the age where we started doing science with computers, and we had very large uh, uh, companies and institutions like RAND, for instance, who hired hundreds and thousands of scientists, and then they, they would go to work working on some particular problem. Fusion was an example of this. And of course, um, there were a whole, you know, there are all kinds of examples in mechanization in the automobile industry and so on in the tech. But it was like very, very big, very well-funded, very large corporate structures, government structures and, and institutions tackling problems. So what tends to happen is, and this is also just sort of a feature of, uh, it's a, it's a feature of modern history, going back to the industrial age, say in the last 200 or so years, what tends to happen is whatever the society sort of collectively decides are the right problems to think about, those are the, those are the problems that get the attention, the money, and so on. And so when you have Napoleonic science, it's, you're always in danger of the proverb, you know, the proverbial thread of every, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so you kind of have this where you're working out the consequences of what everyone has already decided are the interesting things to think about. And we've already decided the ways that we're going to tackle them. And you may, for instance, you know, this is, has some degree of success. And certainly, certainly some major projects have been successful this way. Mapping the genome is probably a, a really good example, although it didn't pay off the way we expected it to. It didn't solve, we didn't cure the cancer, let alone the common cold. It took a large, well-funded effort to map the genome. And so that was a Napoleonic type of project that terminated in success. At least the desired outcome was achieved. But the, the, what happens is in the zeitgeist of, when you have a confluence of money, and organizational top-down power, and you have relatively mature technologies to put to use, you're very much in danger of losing out on the, the um, uh, other parts of science that are often necessary to make significant advances. And it takes, it takes the society a while, sometimes decades, to figure out, yeah, we, we've got to do, we've got to put money and resources into other things. And so now I think really in recent times, you could make the argument that we've, we've been 
we've, we are so Napoleonic right now, you can't really think of a time except for maybe immediately after World War II where it was this one-dimensional in terms of how we're thinking about thinking. Um, and so, you know, if you look at big, if you look at data-driven AI, that's pretty much the hammer. And everything now is going to look like a problem that's solved by datafication, by, by um, getting more data. And then by um, uh, coming up with features where we think those features are uh, getting at something that we want to see. And then we just run the, we basically run the, the big data AI. We train the model, if you will, right? And then we see what results we get. And so we're actually passing off a lot of that scientific process of tinkering and trying to find interesting problems and thinking about how they would possibly be solved in this broader spectrum of thinking. We're kind of actually passing all that off into a black box and then seeing what comes out the other side of the black box. And the, the creative part of the scientist now is in feature engineering. It's basically saying, I think these features are, will be evocative, so to speak, or will be fruitful for coming up with whatever we're going to see on the other end. Now, this actually can produce novel results. There's a drug, an antibiotic called Halicin that was produced this way. Uh, and that, uh, much is made out of that because it was produced by, uh, you know, scientists basically selecting the features of proteins and molecules that they thought were, that played a role in something having antibiotic uh, properties. And this was actually just pulling in, pulling out existing knowledge from what we already know about how antibiotics work. And so, but you know, th those features were selected and then lo and behold, Hallison is a new kind of antibiotic that we didn't know about. And a lot has been made about that because it, it's, it is true that it was actually, it was sort of found by the machine. The scientists didn't know that Hallison was going to come out the other side of the black box. They just selected reasonable features given the problem. And so there's an instance where that, that method worked. Now, Hallison is not general relativity. <laughs> it, it remains to be seen whether it's even that useful at all, but it was something that worked given the tools and the method that we have. But the interesting thing is, the idea is typically that as Moore's law goes, we've got faster and faster computers and they're getting smarter and smarter. So we should start seeing this explosion of, of scientific progress, right? So if you take sort of some, a futurist like Ray Kurzweil and you read, you don't even have to read between the lines. If you just read the lines, the idea is that, you know, we're going to just start solving difficult problems because person plus machine at first is just so much better than person alone. And then eventually just machine itself will be so much better than even person and machine. And so we're already on this trajectory, you know, if you talk to futurists and really just boosters of AI, really people who are very, very bullish on AI, they'll, you know, the rhetoric is just that it's always just coming around the corner that there's just going to be this huge explosion in scientific knowledge because suddenly now we have new tools and we're dealing now with smart tools. Um, and the tools just keep getting smarter. And so they're going to be able to see into nature in a way that the unaided human mind just can't do. And I think that narrative 
uh, it has this dual quality of both sounding reasonable and kind of exciting and plausible and even commonsensical. It has that narrative, but it also has this other side to it where it very subtly kind of limits what we're going to be looking at and thinking about. And so it actually has this big danger of creating a kind of um, slowdown and a, and a, a kind of culture of um, uh, stagnation, right? And that you don't see in the rhetoric, but you see once you start to unpack what's involved in making these claims. Um, and so, you know, um, so one of the thing, one of the problems is that in the scientific method, and I'm using this in a general sense, I'm not using this necessarily in the sense that you learn in high school where you have the hypothetical deductive method, although something like that usually is what's happening. Those pieces come into play, but they might come into play in different order and they might have different relative weights and so on. So I'm just using this in the more general sense, but um, what happens when you kind of funnel um, scientific discovery and the needs for scientific progress in the society, when you funnel that into the data science model, right, you very much constrict the tinkering part or the hypothesis generation part. It basically becomes um, the first part of a mechanistic process, which is feature engineering. And feature engineering itself is really just an extrapolation of existing knowledge. So you're really requiring, you're, you're asking of the discovery process to actually happen in the black box of the machine. And it, the, the garbage in, garbage out thing very much applies. If those features aren't selected auspiciously, as it were, then you're not gonna expect results. And the other thing is, is that if you, <laughs> if you put, if not enough attention is paid to the sensitivities of the human mind to selecting interesting problems and having the free play uh, among scientists, among the, a community of, of scientists to actually, um, you, know, you know, pursue um, different sorts of problems that might be non-obvious at first. If you don't, if you're not investing in that part of the, the process of doing science, it's very likely that you're going to keep selecting problems that, um, you know, are, are, uh, are, have short range solutions and are already kind of well-defined in the, in the, in the, um, the culture that, you know, in the climate that you're in, right? So you're not going to make a lot of really groundbreaking discoveries if you're, if you've already committed to this kind of way of doing science. Um, and so that's a big problem. Um, if you have, uh, right. So if you have, um, more, so how do I want to put this? This is kind of a, this is kind of the key point. I'm not sure exactly how I want to put this. Um, so it's possible that you actually will keep selecting solutions to problems that are actually false problems because there's something wrong with the, um, there's something wrong with your existing knowledge in the first place. This was, this is kind of the, um, the Kuhnian point, but I think it's, it's really, really relevant actually. Right. So how might, how might I do this? This is probably the best example I can take from the history of science. Um, but it's a doozy. <laughs> um, so if you look at Ptolemaic astronomy for 800 years, the, uh, assumption was the belief was that 
the Earth was at the center of the cosmos, and the orbit around the Earth of the stellar objects, the constellation of objects you see in the night sky, they um, traversed perfect circles, basically. And this came out of, basically, it came out of old Greek. Ptolemy was uh, an ancient, and um, he himself um, was educated in the schools, the, the old Greek schools of Plato and Aristotle. And of course, Plato famously described certain um, interacting bodies that said they would have to have perfect circles because this is kind of like there's this harmony to all this, right? And so, so the, you had a set of assumptions turned into a set of beliefs that turned into a set of convictions that the earth is at the center of the cosmos and the panoply of objects that we see in the night sky revolve around the earth in perfect circles. And so immediately you have all kinds of problems because you have retrograde motion where one planet seems to overtake another planet in orbit and then the, the one the, it actually backtracks. What's happening, of course, is that um, uh, it's going past it because it's on a, a further orbit out, right? But it looks like it backtracks. And um, so you have, you, like, there was the other assumption that they were all the same, like the two planets were at the same distance from the Earth and so on. So you can't, you can't explain the backtrack by being in a further out orbit. Uh, so you, <laughs> you have a model that's just wrong, but so then you have to introduce an epicycle and a quant and so on. Um, where you have a you have a little smaller circle, the planet is is going around the Earth and it's also going around its own orbit in a little circle. So you see, you can you can actually account for observed phenomena like relative motion. You if you just keep adding kind of tweaks to this perfect circle model. So for eight hundred years, uh, the smartest people in the world just keep kept running experiments and kept working out the math of how to make astronomical predictions given a geocentric model with perfect circles and equants and all this, these other things. I think it was epicycles and equants, right? So these other perfect circle connections uh, to the main circle. Literally, quite literally, that's the model. Um, and it was not like, these were not dumb people. And there was a lot of mathematics behind it. And in fact, the predictive power of the Ptolemaic model was quite good. It turned out that I think it was Gregory, the Pope, there was a, some problem with the calendar. I don't remember the details now, but I think it was the, Gregor, the Gregorian calendar. There was some situation where it was off and it was unacceptable to the Catholic Church because it had religious significance. So uh, Copernicus was a mathematician, an Italian math mathematician who lived roughly in the Renaissance period, the 15th century, I think. I think he was born in the late... 15th century, and then he spanned into the 16th century before he died. Uh, and anyway, so that's 1400s and 1500s. Um, and but so Copernicus was a mathematician. There were mathematicians back in the 1400s, um, and you know there were also very very smart people back then, like like Copernicus. So, and, but he was hired to look. You got to fix the Ptolemaic model because something's wrong with it. Now, if he was a data scientist, he would have been trying to get access to more computational power in the cloud to run more experiments against the Ptolemaic model to see if we needed to add another perfect circle somewhere in the diagram, right? There's nowhere in the, the current sort of Napoleonic way of doing things would it 
would it be very likely at all for, for a person like Copernicus to say, actually, I don't think the Earth is in the center at all. Now, that's not selecting a feature for an existing system and then running a black box computation to see a crank out a solution. That's not getting another variant of penicillin or something and then calling it the greatest thing ever because it was uh, because it made possible by advanced computation or AI. That's actually just reconceptualizing the space itself. And so, you know, in that time, the Renaissance era had its problems, of course, and the, and the Catholic Church was arguably one of those problems because it tended to quell dissent. But it was an era of unbounded promise, and it had as its distinct feature the power of the human mind as one of its core uh, tenets. And so there was this idea that increasingly, and Copernicus was in Italy at the time when this idea was, um, was really pervasive, it was becoming more and more pervasive, right? The people were starting to emerge out of the Middle Ages and they, we had this new generation of thinkers. Uh, you had this recapture of the past in the Renaissance where, I can't remember his name now, Plutarch? Uh, I can't remember his name now, but he sort of brought back or rediscovered all this ancient um, erudition, right? And so there was this there was this sudden interest in reading and rethinking about old problems in that era in the Renaissance. The Renaissance was part of the mark of the Renaissance was we're going to revisit old problems with new, fresh eyes and new learning. Um. And, you know, new, to some extent, new tech, although Copernicus sort of predated the telescope a little bit. Um, but I can tell that story in a minute. Um, so in the zeitgeist of the Renaissance era, it, wouldn't, it was not shocking for someone like a, a young mathematician like Copernicus to say, I've got a new idea, a completely new idea. Let me work out the math on this. Um, he wasn't hired by Google to uh, come up with you know, a, a, a different feature set and run the one millionth experiment on a deep learning um, algorithm that's got more computer power than you know, the entire world had even 10, you know, 10 15 years ago. He was, he was hired to, he was, well, he, actually technically he was hired to fix this difficult problem, but in that sort of zeitgeist, people like Copernicus, and increasingly when you get into the era of Galileo, suddenly there are people are all over that are doing this, right? Um, he looked at the problem a completely different way. And so in that beginning step, um, you had um, the scientist actually using the scientist's mind to think fresh about the problem without predetermining the path that would be gone down, right? Um, it wasn't so easy, by the way. Things got a little more difficult for Copernicus. In fact, I think the, uh, his seminal work on the heliocentric or sun-centric model, well, that was his main contribution, which, by the way, was less predictive at first. It became more predictive when Galileo got involved. But it, the, what Copernicus said, look, it's the sun at the center of the cosmos, soon to become known as the solar system. Hint, hint. 
Um, but it, look, it's the sun, not the earth. It's a heliocentric model that we're looking at. And those planets and that relative motion between Mars and Venus is because they're in orbit at different, um, you know, we're in orbit ourselves around the sun on earth and they also are in orbit, but they're on different orbits. And that's how you can explain relative motion because they went by us at different speeds. And so one of them looks like it's going backwards when they pass each other. And that was a really, really elegant way to explain this bizarre uh, phenomenon that all astro Ptolemaic astronomers were trying to solve with perfect circles. Um, God, God help us if they had deep learning and, and big data back then, we, we might have had another 150 or 200 years of of uh, computer optimized circles being drawn uh, on the on the on the earth centric geocentric model uh, so 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 yeah so that was that was the the main kind of Copernican you know people call it the Copernican shift because it was such a radical new idea but it's these kind of radical ideas that you're not going to get from the scientific method construed as the human does this kind of tend the garden piece of coming up with you first, you sort of, you know, you, uh, you basically, you decide on the problem you want to solve, but the problems themselves are kind of constrained to stuff that you can solve with a computer. So there's a circularity to this, right? Um, and then you do this sort of kickoff phase where you say, I think this set of features is going, is going to be, um, uh, helpful or salient for this kind of problem. And then you run the experiment and you see what you get. Um, and then you spend the next decade of your professional life adding features and running the experiment in different ways. And it never occurs to you that you should be running a different experiment. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the, the problem the so what I see mainly is the problem is, is that when you have this, when you have this, diminution of the human hypothesizing uh, in science, that actually should be at the center, not in this kind of housekeeping way where you're just selecting, okay, these features and then the actual cognitive um, you know, chore is offloaded to the machine. Um, when you don't have that, the human hypothesizing or discovery component at the center, you're not likely to get really radical progress in science. And for that matter, you're not likely to get really radical progress in technology innovation and everything where the human mind plays that creative spark role, you're likely to basically suffocate that in various ways, constrain it and keep it, uh, keep it locked down and within certain predefined limits. Those eras tend to get really ugly eventually. Um, there's, a, there's actually a connection between all this kind of highfalutin philosophy of science stuff and what happens to the culture if it doesn't invest in people, uh, things just start to get worse and worse, actually. And you can go, I, I'm going to go in the book and explain how this happens. There's a connection between this stuff and the practical stuff that we care about, like the stock markets and, and uh, all sorts of other things that are day-to-day, -day, have day-to-day -day impact. So, I mean, I think that's the main thing. We, we turned, understandably enough at first, but when we realized in artificial intelligence, hey, we have all this data, unstructured data from the web, and these computers just keep getting faster. Every 18 months, they're like twice as fast. Now, all of a sudden, we can just do statistical analysis and just datafy the heck out of everything. And you know what? Maybe that's better than theory. 
Well, and you know what? If people, if people kind of recoil at that suggestion, why don't we just remind them that these computers are going to be smarter than people eventually anyway, so you better get on the, on the boat, right? And so I think that set of ideas, um, if you, that, that's an interesting set of ideas to explore in science fiction, but in reality, it has a very stultifying effect on, on um, science discovery and innovation. And ultimately, it kind of creates this really top-down structure in society where you have, um, you don't really, you're not really making progress, fundamental progress, and you have increasingly more and more people, especially with data AI. The other problem is, is that you have more and more, you have a smaller and smaller group of people owning the means of doing anything, which we're already seeing. And then everyone else has been given this line, basically this shut up and, and you know, give us features line, right? So the population is not, so the leadership of the society is actually no longer investing in this, uh, what we need um, from, to get the most out of ourselves, right? It's not doing that anymore. It's doing this other thing, which benefits, like I said, a smaller and smaller group of people. So you have data. The irony of the web revolution is that we ended up with a lot of data centralization. We ended up with um, very, very large systems that we call in the cloud, but they're really just server farms that are owned by fewer and fewer people. And the only way that we do science or do anything else anymore is by is through that mechanism, right? So you have this very kind of, I mean, this sounds very cliche, but in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of very Soviet-style way of thinking, right? Um, and um, you, can, you, could, you can look at top-down heavy cultures like that to see why that's a, going to be a bad idea, and it's why we can actually do better than that as a society. So yeah, I mean, that's the core thing that I'm thinking in the book, and I've got to, um, well, I think we're right at 30 minutes, so I suppose I'll, I'll just cut it off there, but that's the hard part of the book. It's, e it's easy enough to talk about the events themselves and to see how we had this kind of big, big top-down datafication, data AI um, view of things, this, you know, I've got the big hammer now and here's all these nails that we need to pound on. It's easy enough to show how that was happening in history, but it's a little more subtle to explain why it's really deleterious and really detrimental. And so, yeah, that's sort of what I'm uh, thinking about at this point. The body is material. How do they interact? That's one of the classic problems in philosophy. A lot of ink got spilled over that versus a monist belief the most popular ones a couple hundred years ago were that everything is just matter. And that's, I think that's the de facto view today, right? Like outside of, you know, the, the David Chalmers, the, you know, the union of David Chalmers and everybody that goes to church on Sunday, um, like, whatever that means. Um, you know, mo the, I think the, it's, it's a very popular view now that people are just made of different combinations, you know, of matter, matter and energy, just like the rest of the universe. And so there's nothing, there's nothing about the human mind that's actually separate from any other part of the natural world. That, that's a very common view. People tend to think that it was somehow proven by science um, and so on and so forth. But look, my point in bringing this up is, is that we've had a shift in the debate and people actually... The curious question I have is, is why don't people really debate this anymore? 
uh, it, maybe it could be that I'm just not around to, but you know, when I go out and read whatever it is that I'm reading and I interact with people, professors, scholars, whomever, it just doesn't seem like this, nobody's really carrying the torch for this much anymore. Um, and certainly in the broader popular culture, this is not something that's really keeping people up at night anymore. So we, I think it's safe to say that the, the modern culture, we want to call it, what do we want to call it? This, the, the, you know, the internet culture has moved this question of personhood from big metaphysical uh, claims about substance into basically claims about ability, right? So the new debate sort of is claims about how, what we can solve and how we can solve it and how smart we are. And I mentioned all the other stuff about, about bias and so on. And so there's this, kind of, there's this kind of refocusing of this question of personhood around questions of ability. And I think, but we can, I think if we go back, we can actually see how this changed. So if you go back to one of my favorite thinkers, anybody who knows me knows that I just love Dostoevsky for many reasons. He was a brilliant novelist, storyteller, and he was also, I think, had his finger on a lot of the key ideas that he was, he was, kind, of, he was kind of ahead of his time. So the things that Dostoevsky were, was talking about in the 1860s and 70s or were, you know, the things that he was, the, the ideas that he, were, he was bringing out in his prose were actually the things that became very crucial ideas in the 19th century or in the 20th century, rather. So he was a little bit clairvoyant as a novelist and a, and a philosopher. Um, but Dostoevsky would worry about a, um, the question of free will versus determinism. This also is a very traditional historic entry point into what is the human person, right? So here's the question. Are we free from what seems to be the physical flux, the causal flux of the physical world? Are we in any sense free of that in any way? Um, or are we in fact determined like everything else we think is determined, like a clock, right? Um, and um, this was this already had represents a kind of shift in the debate from the real metaphysical claims that were going on, you know, with the scholastics and so on. But I mean, they were talking about this as well. But in the 19th century, the reason that determinism and free will was, was such a popular concept um, is because of the success, largely because the culture had changed to celebrate the scientists of the previous century and the early part of the 19th century. So you've got um, Newtonian mechanics, which is a deterministic system that has all this predictive power about the universe and the physical world. And you've got, um, you've got uh, Hamiltonian equations and Maxwell's equations, which also apply in the, you know, in the Terra, not the, just the celestial realm, but down here on earth, they apply to things that we care about, like steam engines and electricity and um, all sorts of more practical pursuits. It turns out that all of this, de these deterministic uh, laws that were discovered by these you know, Enlightenment era and post-Enlightenment era scientists, 
it turns out that that's all determined. And so the question of where human beings fit into this new scientific world was a really salient and important and trenchant question. And uh, Dostoevsky was particularly worried about this. Uh, he had a, but he had a view which made clear his view of the transcendence, the ultimate sort of uh, transcendence of the self. He has this famous quote, I think this also made it into my book, where he said, even if you built uh, this crystal palace of reason that determined everything that a person was going to do, right? So you've kind of made a person into an automata because you've been able, science has become so powerful and so, and so capable of, of understanding how physical objects move through time that we can apply science to the human person and, you know, we can actually just tell you what you're going to do before you do it. And that seems like we've just used our own brains to, you know, brilliantly discover scientific laws that now have this unfortunate consequence of making us all machine-like, revealing that our true nature is uh, something not different than an earthworm or, um, you know, a pendulum. And Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky famously said, like, let's suppose that we did this. Here's the interesting thing about the person. Um, even if we had this crystal palace of reason, and by this he meant the, the, the ultimate predictive science. The crystal palace, by the way, comes from the, the uh, World Fair where they built this big, in 1850, I think, in London. I hope I got that right where they built this big crystal palace to showcase science. So he said that's he was using that as a, you know, as a in his book as a symbol or an image that he supposed people would understand or know about. Uh, that in fact the person would by an act of will just pick up a sledgehammer and shatter the crystal palace. Like if you tried to convert a person into a robot, they would deliberately obfuscate your act of doing that. And by their free and unfettered volition, you know, they would actually destroy the, or undercut the, the project just to assert the fact that they're, that they're alive and they're free. And that, that his point is that that's not the nature of what, that is not what it means to be a person. And people will escape from that straitjacket so that it, you know, and I think his claim was that, you know, people really aren't that and you won't, there, there will never be a way to make that, um, you know, make the person completely predictive. And so uh, this was the, this was the, a big debate that went on in the 19th and into the 20th century. Um, and then by degrees, this is a very potted history. <laughs> okay. Like, this is not like I am not writing a dissertation on the evolution of mind in, you know, the, the last 300 years. But the, in the 20th century, you see increasingly as, you know, as we have more success from technology and a lot of this technology is frankly machinery and of course, computing machinery, you see a gradual shift again in the question of personhood to the question of the capacity to invent or more colloquially the idea of intelligence or smarts, right? And so, you know, in Dostoevsky's time, you know, how smart someone was or what they could invent wasn't the salient hook 
to grab onto to get at personhood. It was whether or not you're free in a world of impersonal determined forces, right? But, but in, certainly in the latter part of the 20th century, there's a lot of ink that starts to get spilled about, are we the smartest? Are we capable? Are we really so infinite in faculties and noble in reason, like Shakespeare famously wrote, right? Are we, do we really have this ability to solve um, these problems? Can we solve our own problems? Or are we just bounded in, in ways? And is the future of human discovery, the discovery of more and more of our stupidity and limitations and the, um, the manifest success of the intelligence of our machines, right? So that, you know, a war, as you roll, as you move forward in time, you see computers overtake us. And then, it, you know, we have to assume this very humble, lesser spot, right? And so that shift to intelligence is really a curious shift. And I want to try to describe why I think that happened. And note, by the way, that this happened without anybody defining intelligence. This is always something that's, I've always been perplexed when the idea you kind of just get for free, right? Like the philosophers used to say, I just, I'll just help myself to that concept of what I mean by smarts. Uh, and typically smarts is kind of, uh, it's, unsurprisingly viewed in computational terms. So I will return to that. Um, so here's how this shifted in my view. Um, gradually, the debate over the nature of mind, whether it was immaterial, like Descartes had argued, or material like so many others had argued, um, gradually that debate started to lose luster. People stopped worrying about that, in part because to many, at least, it appeared to have been resolved in favor, that, in favor of the view that you know, mind, the mind is really just a fancy word for what the brain does. And so all is material. So, and in particular, by the 1950s, something called the computational theory of mind uh, started to dominate this discussions about, um, about, about, person, or about personhood, very generally speaking, but about what the mind is more specifically. And the computational theory of mind basically said that the human person is a computer, um, that's why it's called the computational theory of mind. Or if you want to be more specific, that the human mind is nothing but the working of an algorithm, some very complicated algorithm, but just the working of an algorithm, right? So, so what happened, though, as, tech, as sort of computational technology got further entrenched in culture and its obvious powers became apparent, the old philosophical debates began to converge on this consensus that, you know, people are something like computers. We don't know how exactly, but it's becoming very fishy to say that we have anything like, you know, a, a mind that is, any, is in any way separate from something that we could program. And so this view, the resolution of the old substantive claims this kind of de facto agreement, although certainly there, there are apostates from this, but this broad agreement that something like the computational theory of mind must be true um, 
started to force discussions of personhood and our potential for achievement using our minds to comparisons with algorithms. Do you see that? I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but do you see it? Um, I think that's an important point to make. Now, uh, there's always been a kind of... Now, here's where things get really interesting. There's always been a kind of paradox embedded in any deterministic claim about the human being, right? There, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Alasdair McIntyre, back in 1980, he wrote a book which is still remains one of my favorite books called After Virtue. And he pointed out that there's this curious exclusion of, of the person making the claim. So if you, you know, he has this famous passage, which I'll summarize, but the, the scientist who says, I'm putting humanity under the microscope and I'm going to, you know, um, find ways of, I'm going to, I'm going to show that, you know, this person is actually just nothing but an automata, um, you know, is always actually, you know, in a sense, recusing themselves, as it were, from that determinism that they're imputing on um, the subject, right? So, <laughs> so there's a kind of paradox in that, right? Like, so you, ha you have to break out of the circle somehow. The scientist has to be in possession of something like freedom, or you can't make sense of the, what they're saying as being true. And the scientist will behave as if <laughs> they're outside of the deterministic circle, as it were, right? And so, you know, McIntyre noted that long ago that there's a power element involved in claiming that, that the human person is actually just a computer program and is actually just completely determined. And in theory, we could figure out what that program is and start tweaking the person and controlling them and so on. Um, uh, but there's a kind of paradox in that, in that the, 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 the person who's making the claim will never actually assume it themselves. And that creates a kind of curious uh, discontinuity in the theory, as it were. And it, uh, right, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So uh, this paradox, I bring it up because it's also very important, I think, for understanding what's going on today. We still have this paradox and we have never really resolved it. Um, but right, um, so I would say to review that the shift from the kind of free will determinism debates that uh, were so ubiquitous in the 19th century uh, to this, this kind of obsession with how smart we are and how dumb we are relative to the, our, the technology that we create, um, that kind of presupposes some even playing field. And I think in, our, in, you know, in this case, it kind of presupposes, like I said, it, the CTM, right? Like it, it does, it, it, it's not necessary. It doesn't necessarily presuppose it, but in as but a point of historical fact, something like the computational theory of mind is putting everything on a playing field so that we can start comparing what we think is apples to apples or computers to people. Um, and so another way of putting this is that the idea that we're free and there's something there's some there's something magnificent about us in this old Renaissance sense. People just don't think that anymore as a substantive claim. And so we're left with this 
this kind of denuded, you know, conceptual space within which to conduct the debate in the first place, which is now, you know, we're going to go around and around with an undefined notion of intelligence that's very tightly married to the concept of computation. And within that straitjacket, we're going to have to figure out about the the magnificent potential of the human person. Well, good luck with that, um, right? So, since I mean, you know, so here's the thing that we see: people, by and large, don't uh, get smarter as a like as a broad statement about the powers and potentials of the human people. It's not as if you know we had Einstein and now we have Einstein plus plus in 50 years because. You know, just like machines are getting faster, you know, humans are just getting smarter. It's just like we're as basically as smart as we were, you know, 80,000 years ago. Um, and so we're kind of, we are who whatever we are and machines are, you know, like there's one linear graph that I will fully concede, which is, you know, the Moore's Law graph, right? Like this is just, computers are getting faster and more powerful as a function of time, right? And so we see that progress and we don't see, we see ourselves being just kind of what we are. And so it seems like, you know, it's only a matter of time until computers overtake us. And um, it also seems like when judged by an algorithm, we're, we have all kinds of flaws and we're kind of stupid. Um, there are the, I think I mentioned this book with Kahneman called noise, right? Well, that book is, has brought on all this machinery that I've just, I've just sketched and basically just assumes, look, if you put us in a head to head competition with an algorithm, we make all this noise and doesn't bother to point out, right? Like, okay, there's, I won't really have time to get into this and I haven't pointed out the paradox yet. Um, but you know, there's all kinds of research that have come out of the Max Planck Institute. There's a guy named Gerd Gigerenzer, who is the kind of um, one of the, um, in, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was one of the precursors to Gladwell's Brink, who points out that actually, like he goes through case studies of people who do remarkable things, and it turns out that what they're doing is ignoring information. So it's actually like having too much information actually makes you stupid if you're a human person. And trying to optimize your information um, typically results in decreased performance. So he has a book called Gut, in- Gut Feelings, The Intelligence of the Unconscious. And he's pointing out that there are all sorts of problems where the, the, the human brain does not conform to um, you know, the an algorithm in terms of what's going to yield the best performance. So we're kind of competing against something that we don't really, that's not how we do things. Um, and there's some really interesting examples in this and like firefighting and choosing a mate and medical diagnoses where less information empowered better, right? Like, so optimal information is actually bad (laughs) in all these, not in every situation, of course, but in, in many of them. And it turns out that when you're dealing with something in time, like stock prediction, having too much information tends to be a detriment. And so almost always you can beat um, an, algorithm, an algorithm on stock performance. Um, you can beat it by a heuristic like one over N where you just divide your stocks evenly. And there's some, there's some, there's some caveats to that, but 
In many circumstances, like using a computer to optimize information actually makes cognitive performance worse. Ah, I read the book like 10 years ago. I just remembered it and I'm gonna read it again. So I don't have it, I don't have any specifics on it. But the point is, is that when the point is not to start debating this stuff. That's not the point. The point is to say when someone who should know better, like Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for work on actually on the on economics, but he um, when he publishes a book like Noise, where he's implicitly equating the human performance to the machine performance, there's it's no wonder that we have a diminished view of personhood, right? Like we're not even focused on the differences. A lot of the energy that goes into modern discussions of people are actually putting people on the same plane as machines and then carrying out the debate moving forward on those terms. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be really difficult. Now, two things going on. One is how do we think differently than algorithms, which is what I was just getting at, but I'm not, I'm not in a position to get fully into that. Just to point out that there, there, there are, um, there's lots of uh, research that's been put on that subject that would be very interesting to dig into. Um, and then the broader point, which is uh, if we're having the debate in these terms, how could we but have a constricted view of personhood, right? Um, and so uh, that's what I want to say. Now back to the paradox, because this got way longer than I wanted. The paradox that we still have is just as McIntyre pointed out that we have this, this curious thing where somebody stands outside of the straitjacket they've put on culture otherwise. Um, this kind of happens, this happens in Silicon Valley. It's very common for us to have two um, views that are in stark tension. One of them is that the innovator is this kind of Renaissance person Right. So there's we just we have this romantic vision of people who rise above the flux of the day to day and envision the future like Steve Jobs. Right. So Steve Jobs has this mythical quality and he inhabits that rarefied air of the Renaissance view of the, you know, the effectively unbounded nature of the human person. Right. And so for Steve Jobs, that's no doubt true. But in fact, the, you know, for the I, for everybody that uses the iPhone, right? It's not true. Sorry. Uh, no, in fact, you're just computing, competing against the iPhone's CPU. And pretty soon that CPU is going to be smarter than you. And you should just go kill yourself basically. Right. I'm kidding. But you see the point, right? So there's a paradox there because presumably if this stuff all applies and the human brain is, is such a wonky piece of crap compared to, you know, the glorious algorithm, right? Like we should have some new Shakespeare saying how infinite in faculties my hard drive is, how noble in reason. Um, but, you know, so the culture still reveres, still retains a spark of the Renaissance within it, even though it's constricting the possibilities of everyone everyone else. Now, there's nobody doing this in this kind of, you know, you know, in like the Goethe sense of Faustus or something, who is the, the devil in Faust, I forget now, Mephistopheles, like there's no Mephistopheles doing this. It's just that the culture is doing something that's bad for it. And it doesn't and it hasn't figured it out. Either it doesn't realize that what it's saying is only partially true or not true. <laughs> right? Or 
it doesn't care about those sorts of things because there's something else that is driving this kind of discussion. I, whatever it might be, product sales, or we just can't help it. I don't know. Um, but there's, the, there's that paradox, right? And so I think like we have still with us going all the way back to the Crystal Palace, that somebody would just break the Crystal Palace even if they show that we were determined. We're still kind of sitting on this weird paradox. But culture, the health of a culture, the zeitgeist of a culture is a statistical idea. It, it means that we have that anybody, it means that the culture is healthy if in the minds of the, the person on the street, right? In the, the mind of the person on the street is the idea that the, the human person is effectively unbounded. And would it be for better education and better motivation and better tools and so on? There's nothing that we can't do. We can fix global warming. We can solve all these problems, right? Um, we can, you know, whatever it is, right? Like that idea for it to be part of the culture has to be embedded in more than Steve Jobs. Like we have to recognize that not just Steve Jobs or Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg have this amazing ability that we're willing to wax poetical about. It, we have to realize that everybody is like this and like this is the fact. And like it turns out that, you know, on things that we're not that good at, computers are much better at. But there are, there are you know, the human person vastly is a much bigger discussion than the comparison. But I think even in the last 200 years, the progression have, of thought has placed us into this kind of diminished position. And what I'm worried about is it's going to have real practical consequences, as someone like Norbert Wiener said back in the 50s. It matters. It actually matters. These insights, he said, tend to come about in cultures and organizations who value insight. And it's hard to value insight when you're looking the other way, right? And so I, I feel like, um, you know, the original title, wow, this did get long. I'm about a minute from done. The original title of my book was called Machine Land. And that was part of the reason I was thinking of that is after thinking about um, Lanier's book, You Are Not a Gadget, and thinking about the reduced possibilities of what can be for the human person. And so, yes. That's a big part of what I want to write. Although, actually, spoiler alert, I'm not going to really cover this, any of this directly in the book. It's going to sit in the background, but the reader will walk away with these questions. Uh, that's somewhat how I like to do things. And that will be it.